0: All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Happy Red Friday on this Friday before the Chiefs go back to the Super Bowl, trying to finish that (laughs) campaign. We're excited here at KSB. If you've been uh, following the association on Twitter, we've had some heated contests about who the biggest (laughs) fans in the association are. Um, And you're joined by one of them today from the advocacy team. Scott Rothschild has been running a heck of a campaign on that. (laughs) We're excited for the Super Bowl and excited to be welcoming you to another one of our advocacy updates. Um, I'm Austin Harris, the Director of Member Engagement here at KASB. As always, I'm joined by our advocacy team, Leah Fleiter, Scott Rothschild, and Mark Tallman. Uh, We have a great bit of content for you today, as is the expectation. It was a a hectic and busy week in the legislature with lots of twists and turns that we're going to get into. As we work our way through the news this afternoon, feel free to drop any questions you have for our team into the chat. Or uh, it's a small group. You can just unmute yourself, raise your hand, and ask the question. Our team loves to to hear your thoughts and your comments on what's happening in the legislature and they'll do everything they can to get you an answer. Um, And if they don't have an answer, I know that they'll go find one for you. So with that, we'll go ahead and dive in with a pair of bills that we've been watching closely tied to private school aid. Mark, both Senate Bill 61 and House Bill 2068 have been worked in committees. They're moving through the process in the legislature. What can you tell the group about where those are and what we expect coming up next week?
1: Well there's two bills that at this point are identical dealing with private school aid. I'm going to I'm going to talk uh, talk about what they do. We're going to talk about the concerns we and other education groups have about them and then we're going to talk for a minute about another bill which has a very different approach but many of the same concerns and more. So we're going to be on private school aid here for a little while. We want to make sure you understand how these bills work, what the concerns are. So we just emphasize what Austin said. If you've got questions, we want to answer them. Senate Bill 61 was recommended by the Senate Education Committee and House Bill 2068 by the K-12 Budget Committee just last night. Recommended means that they now go to the full House and Senate floor. They will only come up for debate when leadership wants to have that debate. So we can't tell you when it would be, but it could be as soon as next week or it could be several weeks. Often it's a matter of leadership wanting to run them when they think they have the votes to pass them. Um, and so if there's enough opposition, they, they may not they may not even come up. And of course, they could still, still fail. So the, those two bills, the ones that are actually out of committee, are their modifications to a current program that is already in Kansas law and has been for about five years uh, called tax credits. And the way this program works is the state gives a 70% credit for contributions that people make to independent scholarship granting organizations. And those organizations use that money to then provide scholarships to students who qualify that can be used for certain private schools. Under current law, you qualify as a student if you're eligible for free meals, not reduced, and if you are attending one of the 100 public elementary schools that are ranked as having the lowest test scores. Now, let's get something right out. There's often a phrase that these are failing schools. That's that's the reason that, uh, that the, one of the justifications for this bill five years ago. It's important to understand that those schools, by and large, have high poverty rates. They are mostly in high poverty districts. And in fact, there isn't really evidence that, that kids do substantially worse in those schools as individuals. There's just a lot more kids that, that struggle because of other factors, But the point is the current program is very narrow. It is capped at $10 million. And we don't even give that many tax credits and we don't even give all the scholarships that we could. So the supporters are frustrated because they're feeling we're not really, program isn't growing, it's pretty limited. And so both bills do two things. They allow reduced meal students to qualify Right now in public schools, about, oh, roughly 30, 30 to 35% of kids qualify for free meals, varies by district, and another roughly 9% qualify for reduced price meals. So this would be taking kind of the potential pool from about 30-some 30, 30 percent of kids uh, up to about 45% or more of students, and it would remove any, any limitation on what schools you're attending, So any free or reduced lunch child in any district would now be free to attend any qualifying school. And that's the last thing I'm going to say about the bill. What's a qualifying school? It is a school that is either a a private school that is either accredited by the state, which is the majority of schools participating. For example, all the Catholic schools in the state, Lutheran schools in the state, and a few others are state uh, accredited. But it, the, the current law, which is not changed, also allows schools that are accredited by another national or regional accrediting body approved by the State Board of Education for teacher licensure purposes. It essentially means the state board says, if you're a school that is accredited by, say, a, a, a Christian accrediting body or, or some other group of private schools, that it means The teachers can count that when they're when they're uh, trying to get licensed in Kansas, but those schools do not have to take state assessments, give them to their kids. They don't have to uh, put in enrollment data. So it's a it's a it's a it's a certain qualifier, but it means those schools have far less data provided, and that's been a point of controversy. Now, we, KSB and a number of other groups have issued a joint statement. There are some concerns we would like to quickly mention about why we're, why we're opposed to these bills, but maybe I'll pause for just a minute to see whether there are any questions about how these bill works or if uh, Scott or Leah thinks I've missed anything in the description that people need to know. Real quick, just to clarify, this bill would expand access to the number of students, but does not change that $10 million cap, correct? Thank you. That's an excellent point. And that's something that the supporters have really stressed is that this, while more students might qualify, they're saying, you know, the numbers can't can't really grow all that much because we would reach the cap in, in, in scholarships, at least in terms of the state cost. I'm going to maybe segue with that into some of the big objections. But again, if people have questions, please get them up. And the first thing I might mention is about funding. So one of the concerns about this and a debated point is, well, does this cost public education? And of course, there, there are two ways of looking at it. Because it's a tax credit, this is money that goes out back to taxpayers rather than coming into the state general fund. So in a sense, it makes less money available for education or any other program. Of course, there are many tax credits in the state that do that. But the other impact it has is because our enrollment system is uh, based on student count, student numbers is is kind of the starting point of how you're funded. If students leave the public schools for private schools, then enrollments not necessarily immediately because you can use prior year and the second prior year, but eventually fewer schools and fewer students in your district if you lose schools will result in less state funding. Now, it also means you'll have less students to educate, but one of the big concerns that we have, and I would say in some ways I think the most compelling is that under these bills, it remains up to the private school to determine what students it will accept, what restrictions it may put on them, how many will accept, what programs it will offer, which may determine whether student needs can be met, what type of academic standards, discipline standards, or other requirements are put into place. So one of the big concerns is that this creates both a potentially a two-tier system where some publicly supported, at least indirectly, schools can kind of be selective about the kids that they want, which might tend to be the easier to educate students and public schools of course have to educate all students including those that aren't selected by other schools which means that public schools may be left with the more expensive students while losing dollars to do so probably the other major objection and then i'll let leah scott who've been listening to these hearings is 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 just that concern about the possibility of of discrimination Um, not necessarily overt, we won't accept on the basis of race or whatever, but the simple fact that uh, religious schools may have requirements Uh, for, for faith by the student or the parent to participate, uh, or uh, just uh, say, well, we'll, we'll accept students with, with special needs, special education students, but we, we can't really handle them, so you're welcome to attend, but we really can't meet your needs, and other ways that we feel would not be a level playing field between the two systems. So um, I'm going to, looks like a question did come up. Let me look at that, and, and also welcome Leah and Scott, if there's anything Uh, they want to say um
2: actually um chris makes some good points in his the chat about attempted amendments in the house about uh non-discrimination and paying for special education those were some uh amendments that the democrats in k-12 tried to run yesterday and uh, those got shut down on a party line vote but i think we we you know we might um see those again if and when this bill comes to the floor so you know good point chris
0: and a, a question there from Claudia and asking, you know, is this new or is this tied to the new batch of legislators? Um, of course, bills like this are not new either to the Kansas legislature or nationally. Um, but this one feels like it has a little more momentum. How closely is that tied to the new batch of legislators who were sworn in about a month ago?
1: Well, the bill is identical to one last year that was recommended by the same committee never voted on on the floor of course the legislature ended quickly so we don't know how that vote would have gone but I think there is a feeling that this legislature uh, is likely to be more supportive of these programs and, and quite frankly with the discontent over remote learning in many and in, in, uh, you know hybrid and just a lot of discontent out of how how districts handled the pandemic whether uh, they had a choice or not, uh, is certainly a, been given a boost uh, some private schools are arguing that you know they've been able to stay open of course it's also clear and Scott shared this that one one story out of Manhattan actually talked about well we've we've stayed open but because we can socially distance and we've put applicants on a waiting list that again goes back to the point we're making um, if if you can limit your numbers, you can do things that a public school can't, which can't limit their numbers. Scott, do you wanna add anything to that or Leah?
3: Well, um, I, I think uh, the, the point about the disenchantment that is being felt by some parents over hybrid and remote learning, that is legislators who support this legislation are really using that uh, to fuel uh, their, their goal here. And, and that is going on in many states across the country. Uh, also on the point of the uh, that this bill uh, keeps the cap at ten million dollars uh, obviously uh, that cap could be increased in future legislative sessions and if you increase the eligibility, if you increase the pool of, of kids who could uh, take advantage of this uh, then uh, I think you would kind of have a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy of legislators come back and saying, hey see this is so popular we need to increase the cap so uh, uh, and I think there has been even talk uh, in some circles about uh, increasing the cap maybe next year. Mm-hmm. So um, that's definitely something that'll be revisited.
2: And, and another contributing factor is that um, over the summer, the United States Supreme Court handed down a decision that said that these types of programs, the tuition tax credits, are constitutional. And we don't need to get into the weeds about that. But that was another impetus, I think. Um, if we had not had the pandemic, um, these types of bills would have been introduced anyway, because, you know, the people who are kind of hoping that that decision would come down in that manner were waiting for that. And now it's like, OK, Supreme Court says they're OK. So we're going to we're going to push these further. We're going to broaden them. And, you know, another thing I think we need to talk about is that these programs have been in existence in some other states and jurisdictions for quite a long time. And, you know, our friends in in Michigan can tell you that it's really it's it's hollowing out their public school system. It's a disaster there. And, you know, in the District of Columbia, they when they started theirs, it was a five year pilot project. And that was, you know, 20 years ago. So to use an old adage, this is kind of, you know, these types of things are kind of the camel's nose under the edge of the tent. And that's what we try to be aware of.
0: In the chat, Kathy asks um, a question about the discontent from parents potentially leading to information around homeschools um, and hearing that some parents are moving in that direction. If my understanding is correct, these two bills wouldn't increase access to funding for homeschools, but the next bill we want to talk about, mm-hmm. mine, and right. that's House Bill 2119. So where are we at on, on that piece of legislation? I um, mean, how might that impact things further? Because it's it's right. even a
1: step further than 2016. Let's talk about that, and then if there's other questions about these in general, we can do that. So uh, again, the, we you know we we've often talked about you know are these voucher bills? Well, they're voucher bills in the sense that they aid private education, and the first type of program designed to help private education were called vouchers. It started in Milwaukee, um, and it was specifically designed to give state money through parents to private schools. Because of concerns about that constitutional ruling in states like Kansas, um, the tax credit scholarship idea came up. A third major approach is what is in House Bill 2119, and these are called educational savings accounts. And so 2019 uh, differs from the first two in several ways. First of all, let's just talk about what an educational savings account is under the bill. In this case, if if a student participated, the base state aid per pupil amount for the prior year would be transferred into an account for that student and they could use that for a list of 10 or 12 different things that could include uh, uh, private school tuition, transportation cost to a private school, books and materials, but could also include things like tutoring services, presumably things like Sylvan learning programs, for example, or contracting with services from a public school. So some of you may want to get entrepreneurial or a national um, uh, uh, or a, a for-profit virtual program, a a number of different programs like that, a student could either go full-time in a private school with that amount or under the bill, a a a family could say, well, we'll we'll, uh, we'll stay half-time in a public school and then half of that base would, would remain with the public school and half the base amount would go into account that they could use for supplemental services. Uh, so that, 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 that's the concept is instead of this kind of indirect routing through a scholarship that can only be used really for tuition, it's much broader. Now, who would qualify? Well, well, here's the distinction. Under the bill as introduced, any student eligible for free or reduced meals in the state, and it's not clear whether this would exclude kids already in private schools, so it, we, we, it, it might, but it might not. It's, it's, it's not clear. Second, any student that has been designated by a district to receive at-risk services. So most of you know, if you're a free lunch kid, that creates money for your district, but you spend the money on kids based on demonstrated need factors. So if there's a child who isn't free or reduced lunch eligible, but is receiving services because of academic difficulties, they would qualify. And then finally, any student that had been in remote or hybrid learning over a certain threshold uh, in a given semester or calendar year would would qualify, which basically means if the bill immediately took effect, and and just procedurally that might be difficult, but since because virtually every child um, who was in school last year was out of school uh, for a quarter of out of
2: the classroom
1: out of the class. That's right. A good, good point. It was, was in remote learning or hybrid learning or not on site. Virtually everyone would qualify. How that would, whether that's considered cumulative is not so, so basically I think the end, the end goal is to basically let everyone be able to take advantage of this. It's just a question of how fast uh, you would get there. Now, there are a couple of just for just, I'm doing, this is only for Lou uh, cause he'll, he'll want to know these details. Um, <laughs> The bill actually allows you, so the base amount would be transferred, but the weightings that a student would receive would actually stay with the district for the first three years of the program, and the bill does not change the one or two-year enrollment look back. So the school district would actually have some kind of a, if you lost students, It is apparently designed not to have you lose all the money right away, but um, that also means it would cost the state more. Finally, there are virtually no no limits on what schools could take advantage of. It says unaccredited non-public schools, which under state law includes homeschools. The only requirement is that the school has to register with the State Department of Education, which homeschools are supposed to do now, and teach the subjects that are uh, required by uh, for public schools, which are basically things like elementary school. She'll be taught reading, writing, you know, arithmetic, uh, some physical education, and all students are to get courses in civics and American government and Kansas history. So the school has to teach those, but there's really no definition of what teach is, there's no requirement for testing, accreditation, anything like that. Now, all of these will probably be subject to amendment and discussion, but as it is now, it appears the bill would say, if you want to start a homeschool, register it with the state, um, I guess uh, buy buy, buy some curriculum materials, you would get the base state aid for your child, and there would be essentially no no oversight of that whatsoever. Um, again, it's a little unclear whether that would apply to all students currently doing that or only those expanding. So those are the big differences. Again, let me kind of pause and see whether there are questions uh, or supplement for Scott from Scott or Leah. One clarification I'd like,
0: like to ask specifically pertains to those students who had qualified based on being in remote learning. Does that just qualify them for the year following the remote learning or do they
1: qualify for this uh, program for the duration of their K-12 education? So that's a question that we put to the drafter of the bill who indicated he believes the intent. The the language of the bill talks about remote learning for either 120 hours uh, of, of the school term in the current or preceding year or 180 hours within one calendar year, whichever comes first. So it depends on whether the one calendar year is read as the current or preceding uh, one calendar year within the current and preceding time frame or any calendar year ever. The bill doesn't seem to be clear. So that could mean that any student who has now met who met that threshold now would be eligible from now until they graduate. If that if that happened, if they were uh, if they were kindergartner when that happened, they could be eligible forever. Now, again, we don't know the intent because the bill has not been explained. And the proponents who presumably will explain the intent have not spoken. Uh, We have a true or false question here from
0: Kathy. Uh, Her question is that if a child is homeschooled, can they participate in sports at the local school?
1: So there may be people who know better than I, but in that case, it is the rules of the activities association that I think have to do with enrollment and courses being taken or passed that would ultimately govern that. So I believe the answer is no. Um, but I'm not an expert on that. You're getting lots of thumbs up and head nods. Okay. I I hope I have that right. Now that of course, doesn't mean that a friendly amendment to this would, would not change that, uh, that position. And we, we have actually had bills in the past that would, that would allow local boards to allow private uh, homeschoolers to participate. um, But that's not the current status. Great question.
0: what's the schedule here for house bill 2119 mark it's yet to have a hearing correct
1: its hearing is monday we will be testifying um and uh uh, they could work the bill uh in any time in the following week or any time thereafter um so basically the bill could could be a live issue for for literally weeks or the rest of the session um uh we just don't know, but but the hearing the hearing is the first step. Bills are, are almost never they're really not supposed to be worked in advance without a hearing. Uh, this will check that off.
0: Scott Leah, anything to add on twenty one nineteen specifically, or the conversation more broadly?
3: Well, uh, just a just a little bit more on the hearing. I think the committee chair Christy Williams is allowing uh, in oral testimony. She's allowing seven people on each side to, to uh, uh, give oral testimony. And um, I, I kind of just a, a question popped in my mind, Mark, if, if you qualify for this, because of remote or hybrid ed, uh, education, and can you go to a private school or a homeschool and then be remotely educated?
1: Well, the bill specifically says you can use savings account money for for virtual programs, and it does not prohibit the private school from from doing remote learning. So you you could conceivably be authorized to take advantage of this because you were in remote learning, use that to go to a private school, which then in the next pandemic uh, has to go to remote (laughs) learning, but you would still be able uh, to do so. Well, I'll just
3: I'll just add, you know, we had a hearing this week uh, on uh, hybrid and remote learning, and basically it became a session for people to vent about the problems they've had with that. And that was, I think, the lead in uh, that the committee chair uh, wanted to uh, have before the the actual hearing on this bill.
0: On all three of these pieces of legislation, KASB continues to encourage you to reach out to your legislators, reach out to committee members, uh, we have put out information for how you might do that uh, through email it's on the website and we'll be continuing to share information with you as we watch uh, all three of these bills as they continue to work their way through the legislature. Not I seeing- do want
2: to give a quick shout out to a couple of people that I see on the screen who did submit testimony this week, Lou Faust and Chris Hipp. So thank you for doing that. And there could be others of you who did. I just am not aware of it. So thanks for everything that you all are doing. Keep going. Don't stop. <laughs>
0: So we'll uh, move on. Of course, if you have any questions about that that pop into your head, we can always go back to those three pieces of legislation. But the legislature is also working on some bills that focus on preparing students for post-secondary success. What do those look like? Where are they at in the process? And where's KASB testifying on those?
1: I will uh, start because uh, I did a little bit of the testimony here. The Senate Education Committee Uh, This week voted to recommend to the full Senate, Senate Bill 32, uh, this, uh, you may remember from last year, would allow districts to pay for all or a part of the tuition for students in dual or concurrent enrollment courses under state law, your general funds are not supposed to be used to pay for, for students in such programs. Now, we know some districts have used private money, or maybe some of you have done some extra legal activities. We don't know, uh, but this would clearly authorize you to do so. And the idea is there's been a, a lot of growth in recent years. More and more students are taking courses where they get both high school credit toward their diploma, and a start on college. Great programs, a lot of success, but for many of our low-income kids, they can't afford to, uh, they, they, they may not be able to afford the tuition and fees. So this is what designed to do. Now again, this means you as a district have to make that decision, and what we've seen in some cases, and and one example is the Wichita School District, our largest district, which has uh, created an agreement with a local university where they have drastically reduce tuition so that the district feels it's affordable, but is still able to do it so the students don't have to pay anything. So great program that passed out last year. It actually was part of an education bill that was vetoed. So we're back again. We supported that. The, the committee also uh, held a hearing and is working on Senate Bill 43, this creates what's called the Kansas Promise Scholarship Program, and it would provide state funding to cover the difference between student aid and the cost—the cost of tuition, fees, books, etc.—for technical programs or um, or up to two-year programs in high-demand areas. So this is not any community college or technical program. They're they're spelled out in the bill, but there are areas the state has identified as where there's high demand, a lot of employment opportunities, and high wages. One thing that's probably a positive is uh, the committee amended it yesterday to include early childhood uh, development and programs. So these, again, these would not be for teachers because it's only up to two-year programs, but for students who may be wanting to work in childcare centers or as pairs or something like that. So that was amended, um, but the committee is still working on it. We expect that bill to come out. And then in the House, House Bill 2182 contains, as near as I can tell, the identical language to Senate Bill 32, a similar scholarship program, I don't think it's identical, and a, a bill from last year that would address the issue of liability coverage for uh, uh, work-based learning programs. As, as, as I read it, at least, and I've not been corrected by our attorneys, it basically uh, waives liability for the employer, and it allows school districts, and it, it says may, as, as I read it, to include such programs with your student activities insurance Uh, you'd have to work that out with your local insurance coverage so it's designed to remove some barriers that might be to getting students involved in workplace learning activities those three concepts are all in one bill it's not been scheduled for a hearing yet so be happy to take any questions on those if there are any
0: there is a clarification in the chat as to uh, the previous question um, pertaining to homeschool students and the ability to participate in public school um, athletics so you can check there if you're looking for some more clarification on that not seeing any questions on the uh, post-secondary success efforts in the legislature let's move on to some work that the legislature is doing around student health and safety really running the gambit with a number of bills, ranging from um, improving oversight of the foster care system to improving enforcement of school bus uh, stopping laws. Um, so Mark, Scott, Leah, what are the student health and safety laws that uh, we're tracking in the legislature?
1: I'll start with the Senate committee that I did those, and then I know Leah worked on uh medication bill, and then we'll, we'll talk about a few others. The Senate Education Committee this week had a hearing on Senate Bill 51, which would make the foster care education report card uh, a matter of state law it is currently an executive order this is basically designed to kind of spotlight what are quite frankly some really uh, some really bad education outcomes uh, for students um, uh, we testified in favor of this uh, although it's a it's a little uncomfortable because we don't have very good results we're responsible for most of those kids uh, and one of the challenges is this is a very mobile population and therefore it becomes very difficult for them to acquire to get the credits to graduate uh, or to kind of stay on track. Um, And so this is one of the examples where our local control can be a problem for kids who are moving around locations. So we hope this is something that will help us all kind of work to improve how we meet the needs of those kids. About 5,000 students in the state. So you might think of it this way. You know, if you're a district of 5,000 students, um, you know, the foster care kids could be their own school district and be one of the larger school districts in the state. Of course, they're not. They're spread all over the state. Um, so that's one issue. Second issue was Senate Bill 61 would update uh, state law regarding some requirements, Uh, of doing vision screening, which public and accredited private schools are required to do. We also testified in favor of this. It it just seems to be a, a good upgrading of terminology and would also create a commission to kind of continue to work to improve vision services for students. So I'll turn it over to Leah to talk about some of the house bills.
2: Thanks, Mark. Um, the House Education Committee held a hearing um, early in the session on House Bill 2086, which allows schools to uh, maintain some additional supplies of emergency medications like um, EpiPens or asthma inhalers and and clarifies uh, their authority to administer that medication, gives you some um liability protection if, if your school nurse or, or another person delivered that emergency medication in good faith, believing that somebody was having a, an emergency health issue that, that that's covered under liability protections. Um, There have been two identical bills in both the Senate and the House, sort of public health committees that would, um, public health and welfare, they create a joint legislative committee for um, oversight of the the child child welfare system in Kansas. And we testified uh, in support of both of those bills saying that, you know, many of the kids who are in the child welfare system obviously are also in our schools. And so that oversight of that system would, would no doubt improve their academic and social outcomes. And then um, 2154 is a bill that's coming up this week. It's about um, school bus stop arms, cameras, uh, basically enforcement of uh, those, you know, you, you always hear about folks who will go ahead and pass a school bus, even though the stop arm is out. And sometimes those can be caught on camera and this is a bill that would um, establish that through kind of a private contractor who would uh, furnish those those cameras and and uh, collect that information uh, on behalf of the State Department of Education. So those are bills that we're watching.
1: All those bills are still in committee, of course. So. That's correct. Uh, several have had hearings, several have had not. None I think to this point except maybe the bus arm which hasn't had the hearing have been very controversial so likely they will be emerging but you can still weigh in with the committee uh, just by letter or prepare to talk to your legislators about it when it reach, when they reach the floor.
0: Uh, there's also plans for a couple of uh, informational hearings in the house education committees on remote and hybrid learning what are we expecting those to look like? Well, Actually, those happened well. <laughs>
2: just this past week. I know it's it's getting hard to keep track of it. So House K-12, that took place on Wednesday evening, went on for quite a while. Scott and I were both uh, monitoring that and, and tweeting about it. I think it was probably it was two and a half hours at least, right, Scott? Yeah, almost three hours maybe. Um, and that was... Uh, a hearing that was um, listed as a discussion about remote and hybrid learning. And it was going to feature um, Craig Nunes-Wander from KSDE. And when we saw that, we, uh, we said, oh, well, this would probably be something that it would be good for our, our members to, Submit some testimony on, or 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 you know participate in, and uh, we were told that that would be fine, but and that could be through written testimony only. And I think some of you maybe recall we talked about that last week. Uh, Chris got together the uh, private and public schools in in the Hayes area, and they put together a statement about how how that's worked in their area and statewide, and um, and so I there was quite a bit of written testimony uh, submitted. I think there were seventy some pieces of written testimony, but the only testimony that was heard was oral testimony that was allowed uh, from parents who, you know, are, we've kind of talked about this already, they're frustrated, you know, they agree with board members and teachers that, you know, remote and hybrid is not optimal, but they're very frustrated. And so they, uh, they spent quite a bit of time talking about um, their experiences and, and their frustrations with, with, how the school year has uh, played out um, both, you know, since last March and, and beginning in August, Scott, did you want to add anything on that?
3: Sure. I I think the, uh, the uh, irony of the, of the hearing was that these parents who were so upset and like I, like Leah said, we certainly understand their frustration, but a lot of their testimony was about how great their schools are and how important (laughs) uh, it is to be in person. And, they um, said wonderful things about you know the programs at their schools and and the teachers and and so they they really want their kids back so i think it was at one point i think the 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 committee chair set up the hearing to be a a session of uh people um you know whacking public schools and they certainly did they were upset with the decisions to go to hybrid and remote but on the flip side, these people spoke glowingly about the quality of their schools, and uh, so I thought that was kind of a an, an interest. I don't know if the committee member, uh, some of the committee members, heard that, but I certainly did, and and I thought it was uh, an interesting part of the the meeting.
0: And Leah, Chris is holding you accountable. Yes, in that. yes. You made, made a bold promise last I week. I did last uh, week.
2: I promised to eat my. K, my metal KASB travel mug, if a certain uh, doctor from Johnson County did not appear, she was number one on the witness list. So I got that out of the way right away, called my dentist, told him he could stand down. So, <laughs> so you know, I wanted to point out that then the next day in the House Education Committee, which is a different committee that tends to deal more with, with um, some of the... Um, Philosophical issues around education rather than the funding issues, uh, Chairman Hubert asked his committee members to talk about what uh, what the experience had been in their legislative districts with remote and hybrid learning. It was a much more kind of measured conversation uh, people talked about some struggles coming back, but but things had pretty much evened out or, or you know, it was a little more balanced about how, how folks are trying to work together to do the best they can and that we all acknowledge it's not, you know, remote and hybrid is not the best situation, but decisions are made and driven by local data. So um, it, was just, it was a pretty interesting week on that front.
0: So as we have that working its way through the legislature uh, this week, uh, next week, we have the State Board of Education coming together. They're expecting to hear um, from the Department of Education on the Navigating Next plan for moving forward. Scott, what can you tell us about uh, those plans and what we're expecting out of the State Board meeting?
3: Well, uh, on their agenda Tuesday morning, the Commissioner, Randy Watson, is ex- is kind of scheduled to talk about uh, what's being called Navigation Navigating Next. And uh, this is, I guess, the, uh, the next chapter uh, from the Navigating Change document that uh, was uh, unveiled at the start of the school year. And I think uh, this, as far as we know now, the proposed uh, Navigating Next Guidance is kind of meant to help school districts as they prepare to transition out of the pandemic, you know, knock on wood. And uh, according to a memo from KSDE, it's going to provide recommendations on the use of federal funds and federal relief provided uh, through the various uh, federal bills that have been that have been passed. So uh, we're going to be watching that pretty closely Tuesday when it's unveiled. The state board on Wednesday is supposed to kind of ha- uh, have a discussion and 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 possibly consider uh, the navigating next uh, uh, for approval or to add to the navigating change document and and I think you know, the, the, the momentum is there to get kids back in school. I mean, obviously uh, that, that is going on across the nation. So I think this is part of, of uh, that sort of effort.
0: Mark Lee, anything to add to that conversation? I don't think so. Okay. Um, we also have hearings on school funding in the Senate Education Committee uh, coming up, Mark, Leah, Scott, um, where are negotiations on the budget process and where does that stand, particularly as it applies to the school funding piece?
1: Well, the, the first formal hearing on the budget is Monday in the Senate Education Committee. For those of you that are real political junkies, you know, kind of some news this year, uh, the Senate is not, Senate Ways and Means Committee is not sending the education budget through a subcommittee, but is having the full standing committee work it. This is true of several other budgets. I uh, don't know whether this amounts to very much except for the fact that the Senate Education Committee is remarkably new. Um, certainly, I'd have to think back. At least a majority of the members uh, are new to the committee or the Senate or both. Um, so, you know, maybe some learning curve there. But uh, the, the, the one thing the legislature has to do is pass a budget. We're going to be testifying uh, in basically supporting the provisions of the governor's budget that continues the phase in of the Gannon plan. Um, I don't know whether there'll be many other conferees. You have approximately, I believe, 46 minutes if you want to turn <laughs> in testimony uh, to the Senate Education Committee for the 24-hour, not including weekend, I guess, notice for Monday afternoon. Um, but we're going to be just uh, trying to, to talk a little bit about why the Gannon, how this came about, very quickly reminding people that Kansas historically has invested in schools at, at more than the rate of inflation, but not more than the rate of income growth. That has allowed us to, to add programs and lengthen school days and let kids go to longer and add preschool and all these things that take more money we've done. And over that time, our educational outcomes have continued to increase. Unfortunately, starting in 2009, we spent eight years of not doing that retrenching, and we think we're seeing evidence in declining student outcomes in some key areas over the last few years. The Gannon settlement was about restoring funding back to 2009 levels. That's what the legislature agreed to do. The court accepted the plan to do that, and so we're also going to be showing uh, some data on how our members have used that money investing in what kind of programs and positions, uh, to kind of rebuild what, what we've lost. So that will be uh, our focus. The, uh, The House committee to do that will be our friends in the K-12 budget committee. They have worked on the budget of the school for the blind and deaf. They have not yet scheduled their hearings on the full Department of Education. Uh, They're spending this week in briefings on various things. um, And and, and one of the things they're going to take a a close look at uh, is the issue of federal aid, um, and I think, you know, I've said, some of you heard me say this over and over, uh, I think many legislators are, are kind of trying to create this uh, idea of saying districts are getting hundreds of millions of dollars in federal aid. Um, they're, they're, some have not been in person. Many have lost students and staff. We've got a state budget crisis, uh, and so uh, I think we're potentially being set up to, to justify some reductions in school funding. Um, so, All the things I just said about how we're going to testify, I think, is the message you need to be uh, uh, putting out as well. I want to mention one other, uh, one other bill, um, and then open it up to any other comments. Then we got one or two other items, and that is the House Committee K12 Budget Committee recommended House Bill 2067, um, which says it, it it really amends current law. Uh, I hope you're all familiar with this law that says every board is to do a building-based needs assessment every year and use that data to uh, make its budget decisions. There's a sample form from the Department of Education. Hope you're all doing that. If not, suggest that that's a great way to follow the law and a good exercise, formally or informally. But the bill would change that to say, You are to use that data to improve student achievement, can't argue with that, and to allocate your resources to achieve state education goals. Can't really argue with that. So why did we oppose the bill? I was asked. Well, <laughs> the concern is that it the implication of the supporters, and the, the only proponent uh, was the Kansas Policy Institute, are essentially saying the problem is that we're not spending enough on instruction. We're not getting to that 65% goal. We've tried to point out that the only way to get to the 65% goal would be to, well, honestly, the best way to get there would be to have all remote learning, because a large part of what we spend money on is building buildings, paying for buildings, uh, having the utilities and upkeep and all of those services. So basically about 25% of school expenditures go to operating the physical plant. About 54% goes to instruction, less than 5% to administration. And the rest are things like student support, counselors, nurses, libraries, you know, professional development, technology support, transportation and food service. So, you know, we kind of suggested show us how we could do this. And by the way, there's no real evidence and none has ever been presented that the percent you spend on any function influences student achievement. So we appeared against the bill, not because we think if it passes, it would really change anything, um, but because of what again, our fear that would lead to. This would be another great opportunity for you to share with your legislators, what is your budgeting process? How do you make decisions on where dollars go? And how does your allocation, how do you believe your allocation of dollars support student success? Because that's what this is supposed to be about.
0: Scott, Leah, anything to add? Any questions from the group on any of those pieces around school financing
3: well just that i think i'm muted
0: no you're, you're well, now you're now muted,
3: you're muted. <laughs> oh just that uh, when when mark was testifying on that bill i think the vice chair was was trying to tempt him to be in favor of the bill and it it, it reminded me of jesus being tempted
1: uh, you know, it, and Scott, and I guess since, you know, we're just all among friends here, um, I, I think, you know, it was a choice. Do you say, we agree with the intent of this bill, but we disagree, you know, because it might be mischief or say, we disagree with this bill because we think we're already doing it. It could be misused. Yeah, it would, could have been a rare time to be on the same side as, as KPI. I mean, maybe maybe that's what we should have done. But I do think that's a nuance that that you guys really need to be talking about, because we're framed, and you know, I'm always Dr. No, uh, you know, we're all KSBs against everything. And how can you be against better allocation of your dollars? And that's why this is something that you, I, it's really critical that you be working and, and communicating these reasons uh, with your legislators. Um, you know, I, there are a couple questions. Uh, uh, one uh, data on the length of school day and what works best. I, I can't quote the data. But here's what I think we have found, and and maybe others will join on. The length may be less important than what you do with the time. And if you're just going to add time but are not effectively using that time, it might not be any more effective. Maxine had a question, will they address how school districts recruit teachers uh, who we've lost, Um, the rate of teacher salaries is a concern. You know, that's one of our arguments about what, what did we do with the Gannon money? What you mostly spend money on are people, and with the money that we have been regaining, it has gone into restoring lost positions and trying to make our salaries more competitive. And, and, and again, that's where the focus has been. Now, I'll say the same thing. If you hire teachers and pay them more to do things that are not optimally effective, that can be a problem as well. Um, but, but the bill itself, none of these really go into that issue directly.
0: There was uh, also work done on House Bill 2039 in the House Education Committee. This focused on the requirements of a civics test for high school graduation. KSB did testify on that bill. Uh, Mark, what's the action taken on that bill and how did KASB weigh in? That's all. Speaking, me- of,
2: speaking of Dr. No. Yeah. So I got to be Dr. No on that bill and, you know, kind of a, kind of a similar actually sentiment to what Mark was just saying. Uh, this bill says that uh students would have to take a civics test, uh, based modeled on the one that's required for naturalized citizens in Kansas, uh, excuse me, in, in the nation, kids would have to take that test in order to receive their high school diploma, not only take the test, but pass it. And so we, our testimonies, uh, essentially said, we certainly agree that, uh, Civics education is important, and and kids need to know that information about our you know our democracy, our republic, and uh, you know how to be a good citizen and how to participate, and and what are the uh, the documents and the and the uh, positions that you know made us the country that we are today. But we we pointed out in our testimony that um, kids are already required to pass you know U.S. government or whatever you know whatever you'd like to call that. Class uh, to to graduate from high school, they have to you know they have to accomplish that curriculum, and we then we also pointed out that really the state board of ed and uh, Kansas schools are trying to, as we like to say, pivot from seat time or focus on a, a standardized test to prepare kids by encouraging them to be civically engaged, to do things like work at the polls on election day or, or you know, help out with a, uh, you know, your local city commission campaign or, you know, do those types of things or even have an, in, maybe you have an internship with a local politi- political official, you know, try to get real world experience rather than just depend on kids being able to pass a test. And so um, we were greeted with, you know, some some sort of skepticism you know this is a this is a passion project for chairman hubert he uh, you know he had his american flag tie on you know he he really loves this topic and he's introduced this bill uh two or three times previously he's going to meet with the state board of education about it on wednesday and that was kind of the final hook of our of our testimony is that again we certainly respect his feelings and we applaud the uh, the sentiment behind the bill the fact is that the state board of education is the is the entity that oversees education in Kansas and so we don't feel really that it's the legislature's purview to be dictating the types of things that students need to do to graduate from from high school so um you know not the most popular person in the room that day but you know that's that's why we do what we do but you know we just felt that we had to point that out and we just you know we we told the chairman we would be happy to work with him and the state board and the rest of the legislature and you know our communities to kind of further that goal to make sure that kids are getting a good civics education, but it shouldn't just be through a legislative mandate of, of a really, unfortunately, a redundant test.
0: Very good. As we move to wrap up today, we wanted to touch base on uh, what has been fairly widespread unemployment fraud in Kansas and emerging concerns from employers specifically about who's going to have to make up the loss of money in some of those funds to pay out those benefits. Um, Some action was taken in house appropriations this week. Um, What are they thinking and what's the attitude in response to the unemployment fraud?
1: Well, I listened to that hearing. We did not testify. It's a bill that came up very quickly, and I doubt it's going to be acted on immediately. But House Bill twenty one ninety five would would hold basically all employers harmless for charges to make up for losses in the unemployment trust fund. I hope I'm getting this all correct uh, due to fraud. There are estimates that hundreds of millions of dollars may have been paid out fraudulently. And I and I think the thinking is it mostly wasn't paid to mom and pop Kansas fraudsters. Uh, these are sophisticated operations and, and the money is now well overseas. Um, so, you know, what that does is drain the fund that is designed to be that safety net for the unemployed. And the way we work in Kansas is um, if you have a lot of claims, you, you have to put more money in. Uh, so this bill would basically uh, say, uh, employers. And, and an example, there were a couple districts that talked about losing hundreds of thousands of dollars in fraud claims that they were already being charged for uh, back into the fund. The, the problem is that if the state general fund makes up this difference, you're kind of potentially taking money out of out of one school pocket to put it in the other school pocket because there's only so much state general fund money to go around. Um, so I think what is also being considered um, is whether there may be federal aid in this area. Um, that's all going to be looked at. There are some other bills dealing with this. Uh, yeah, now we're seeing uh, the fraudulent claims. So again, it, it's, it's going to be a real dilemma because if if there isn't some bailout it's going to hurt schools and other employers on one end but where's the money going to come from that's what's being searched for right now so uh, another thing like we always say no easy answers but watch this during the session because it's becoming a bigger and bigger uh, point of topic and we'll want to say that some people who are, who've been very skeptical about about schools in the area of remote learning and others you know have been, pushing efforts in this area uh, to try to to help schools on this end. So further lesson of why you always need to be working with your legislators, even if you don't always agree, um, often you can find some common ground on something. Scott, I think you listened a little, anything else you would want to add on this or. Just that uh, I've heard that. uh, I mean, this
3: is a national problem. States uh, across the nation are dealing with this and, uh, yeah, it's it's just a huge uh, it's it's a huge mess that we're going to have to be dealing with probably for years to come.
0: Well, not to end on the sour note of widespread unemployment fraud across the country, but Leah's is going to jump in.
2: I do. I have a very quick positive note to end on. I just got an email from our our friends at the National School Boards Association, and I had not shared with you all that. The Federal Communications Commission is soliciting comments now about how to use the E-rate program to help remote learning, how to help kids get better broadband. Uh, this gets a very much kind of weedy and complicated, but uh, those of you who are our regular viewers know that that broadband and and the homework gap is something that that we talk about quite a bit. And I start to you know wave my finger and maybe you know promise to eat a metal cup, but uh, now we have an FCC that is chaired by. The commissioner who actually coined the term the homework gap. And so they're soliciting comments from the states and from the national organizations about, you know, how could we perhaps use some of this money that we have already to help you all. So I just wanted to give you a quick update on that and uh, let you know that KASB will be submitting some comments and we can put out a story about that. And uh, if you all have nothing else to do with your free time you can talk with your board about trying to submit comments which is really that's very in the weeds and 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 kind of uh, technical but uh, we will be submitting comments uh, on behalf of the Kansas Association of school boards so I just wanted to let you all know that there's a you know a little sliver of hope there and we'll continue to work on that issue and it's one o'clock
1: <laughs> my understanding is that there are a lot of breaks in the action during a football game so maybe while you're yes. watching the yeah. book, you could yes. draft a letter,
2: yeah. draft
1: a letter the and get that out next week. So, you know, I'm day. sure what the average
0: Super Bowl watcher does, Mark, during That's the right. commercial <laughs> That's people spend true. hundreds of millions of dollars on, they send letters <laughs> to the FCC to talk about broadband internet access. So, we'll expect just a tidal wave of information being sent to the FCC from Chiefs Kingdom on Sunday. That is a wrap on our time. Yeah. What else are you supposed to do? It's a perfect way to uh, spin the Super Bowl. So we appreciate you all giving us a piece of your Friday afternoon. As always, if you have questions, comments, concerns, or need some help and assistance from our advocacy team, they're always willing to do so. You can reach out to the association at any time and get that. Uh, we'll be right back here again next Friday.